just happened. And... Hi, Mr. Jim Evans. Yeah, we're just gonna get the really. Okay. Just yeah. Loose. Like so go ahead and just like. Loosen up. Make yeah, the music up. with your mouth, bitch. What I wanted. <laughs> no, we were talking. We 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 got into across the street. Um, because we were supposed to meet yesterday, talking about. I went through. I lost my mom. Uh, I lost my mom the other day, and real, like quickly, like as fast as you can imagine. I mean, the day before she was ballroom dancing, and and the next day she, uh, she passed away pretty quickly. And I was just processing that information with you and you going through, you know, how you lost your mom. And I mean, even Eddie started talking about you had to pull the plug with your your mom. And I, it was very similar because my dad it was almost identical. And I had to make that decision. And us sitting across the street kind of going through that was heavy, pretty heavy shit. Yeah, for sure. And feeling the, those, uh, the emotions of that part of life losing yeah. losing one of your parents it's pretty it's pretty wild and it's definitely different now for me um but uh i'm not here about me i'm here to talk about you mm. no i would agree i would agree losing my mother was uh it was profound it, it wasn't anything uh that i that i anticipated it would be like i thought it was just going to be a natural course of events but it wasn't at all it was like uh uh, like a soul passed through me and took away part of me. You know, it's, it's like I felt like I like I, I blended with her for a moment and then and then she was gone and then she took her part, all that we had shared and everything like that. So you don't you don't, you don't realize like, um, you know, think about you know somebody dying like your parents, your brother, your father, or something like that. Like what they take, they take basically like, all your memories. Like every memory I had with my mother was gone with her. I mean. All the moments we shared together were just gone. So you, you don't really think about it until it's all gone. Suddenly you say, I can't look across the table at that person again and share all those things. Those are, you know, right. I can have them in my own head, but like, who cares, right? Then your brother, your father, things like that. All these things, you know, they, they take them with you. So you feel, I feel like uh, uh, it's a d diminishing of the soul uh, for me personally. You know, I feel like, like I'm, I'm lesser uh, because of that, you know, just memories are important, I think. They are. I mean, so I felt kind of honestly the opposite. I think going through this awakening and going through this process and understanding life a little bit differently and what's, you know, what's really, you know, what's out there, what I've been experiencing. Um, I just, it, it was different. You know, if I felt like, like when you think back about it, if you're going to die and not really know that you that you could come back, right? That you're just gone, it makes me want to puke in my mouth right now. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like the fact thinking, like fuck, if someone dies, it, you're just not going to come back. I think that freak anybody out. You want to jump off a cliff? You want to do some pretty hairy shit. But after going through this awakening and my understanding of it, I don't have that feeling anymore. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I was in a state of shock because of how it happened. But that was totally my mom. She didn't like waiting in lines. Yeah. Like she was just, she, she checked yeah, in and checked out. Vaseline. She, she, she yeah. just dipped in and dipped out. But watching everything go down in, in the way it did was, it's heavy. You can't get over that no matter what. It's just looking at that and watching all the family members go through those feelings. Um, and, and then, you know, now experiencing it and understanding it just the way I do now uh, is just different. But I do feel that I feel more connected to her, that she went back to source or yeah. God, whatever it is, and, and that feeling and feeling her around me. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say I'm a little jealous, you know, because when I lost my mom, I had no, 
like now it'd be different for me. Like I would be able to feel her presence, and, you know, tap in when I needed to. But I was so far away from that as a kid that it was like it was like you said, it was like unplugging a third of or half of my being was just vacated, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. that ability to kind of communicate now on that on a higher level. Now she's like she's in the room right now, you know, right? Which is completely the opposite of what I went through. And imagine for, for kids, so it, that's the scary to never even see them, but at least to now know, to at least educate them that there is a, there is this other place. Yeah. I mean, we talk about it. We bump on it. Different religions kind of have their own ideas of what that place is, yeah. you know? And, and ultimately, me growing up, my mom was so religious. I mean, she was up praying for my uncle who has cancer and creating prayer books for him, and that was really important to her. So she was, she was really excited and doing something for somebody else, and then she never even made it back home. She went straight to the emergency room, checked in, and we were gonna go see her, and she said, no, nah, don't come see me. They're gonna do some tests, I'm out. Just like that, so I'm like, How, what, what could really happen, you know? Yeah. And the next day, we called up, checked in, checked in, did that, and he's like, you, you should come up. She, she had a little bit of a panic attack. They, they sedated her, and I'm like, oh, we gotta get up there, you know, because he, he's a pretty calm dude. And we got up there, and within 20 minutes, she was flatlining, dead. she was, you know, and then she came back for 20 minutes. They, they, they tried to revive her, and then she waited for my nephew to get there. And then within a minute and a half, then she died. Yeah. And so we, you know, I didn't, it was so much to take in, you know, watching this all go down. Um, but then looking back at it, I was able to step out and just to look at how it happened for her. It really was pretty perfect. I mean, ultimately. Yeah end of the day for her yeah timing yeah she just did i mean and you know going through the process and this is everyone deals with and just part of life and you know it's the balance of understanding you know moving on and i i appreciate and i have a lot of great i've gratitude and i'm very grateful for the opportunity to to be her son that's really what's up and that's how i feel i got what i have now and that's right been turned on to this oh it's a good opening well there we go so jimbo Tell us about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Oceanside, uh, California. I mean, I, I moved around a lot because my father was in the Marines, so he was stationed in lots of different places. We were on the, uh, the East Coast, um, Chicago, um, and we came out to the West Coast, went back to the East Coast, and came out to the West Coast again when he finally got transferred to Camp Pendleton. Um, so I would say I grew up in Southern California. I mean, from the time I was like five years old, I was here. Right, I, I got here about the time they, that Disneyland was built. I think the, the year they built Disneyland was when we arrived. And your dad was a drill sergeant? He was a gunnery sergeant. Gunnery sergeant. Right, right. That must have been interesting. He was at Pearl Harbor. He was uh, you know, a decorated Marine War hero. He had a uh, couple Purple Hearts. Uh, and he was finally wounded in Korea, and that brought him back early from Korea. Probably uh, he would have been slaughtered there. I don't know. He, would have, he would probably would have never come back. But he, would, he got wounded early and uh, came back, and he was different, you know. He was different. I don't remember much after, because I was born when he when uh, when he came back from World War II, and then uh, after the Korean War, you know, he was he was different. He had a rough time. He definitely had a, a rough time uh, readjusting. Mm. But you know, it was a he was a, a Marine kid. You know, brought up on Marine reservations, so it was you know a lot of little devil dogs and stuff like that. I was like saying that. Uh, I mean. Probably you could say, besides for the fact that I live in Southern California, I had this whole, you know, like Southern California culture thing that you see that everybody really likes now. It really was like that. You drove to the Orange Groves to get to Disneyland. I mean, it was really a beautiful place. But at the same time, I was sort of a child of the war culture. I mean, I was, you know, he was a Marine for most of the time I was a kid. I, you know, uh, I was uh, 
in the NRA, and I would go out and uh, qualify. I mean, I had like a chest full of medals. I mean, I was like an expert marksman by the time I was like really? eight, eight years old. Wow. Yeah, so I had all that, that uh, and I mean, that was my background, but at the same time, I, you know, I drew, uh, I surfed, I played in a rock band. Probably the first major creative thing I did was actually play in a rock band. You know, I started a rock band. Uh, I got a couple other guys from school. We got a drummer. Uh, and we played like uh, school dances. We played battles of the bands. We played in San Diego, all over North San Diego County. So we had you know, we had a, a lot of gigs going for like probably five years until I graduated from high school. And then I got a little bit more into uh, to art. And art came, I mean, I was I was an artist as a kid. Like I was, I was telling you that I did, uh, you know, T-shirts for my friends and things like that. Right. But I didn't really take art seriously. I mean, something like, like rock music appealed more to me because of um, it was more outgoing, whereas um, art was uh, an inward thing. I mean, anytime I had to do art, I had to sit by myself and do it, right? Mm. When I played with the rock band, I was out on a stage with the guys, you know, or I was like practicing in a garage. I was always, with, it was collaboration, I liked that. So art came more because uh, the pressure of, uh, you know, the Vietnam War, and uh, I went down and, and uh, to the draft board, and that was 1A, bam. You know, so that was like, they could have shipped me out like any second. So I, I tried to get into a reserve unit. And trying to buy time for a reserve unit, uh, one of the teachers at uh, my junior college I was at, I was taking an art class, and I met this girl and, and she convinced him that I was, you know, that was potentially a good artist. She looked through all my notebooks. She said, you know, Jim really draws well. He really, you know, he's just wasting his talent, like not doing it. And so he told me if I put together a portfolio, he would get me, you know, passing grades in all my classes and make sure I got into a, a art school, a Chouinard Art School. And he said, if you could, uh, you know, put together a portfolio and get accepted, I can make sure you get in, get all the passing grades. So this guy was like, had a really big influence on me because he, he made that transition for me. So I was kind of forced to become an artist, you know, at that point. And I was doing, um, I was doing drum heads for the bands. I was doing posters for local bands and things like that. But I didn't really consider myself uh, primarily an artist. And younger, you were into comic books and stuff like that? Mad, yeah, Mad Magazine was my salvation. Right, right. right. And, uh, <laughs> I look like Alfred E. Newman. Yeah. <laughs> so is that the black version? That's funny. Oh, thanks. EC Comics, all, right. okay. all that sort of thing. But, yeah, that, uh, that definitely defined me. Science fiction movies. So I was definitely a, a child of the 50s. I mean, the, the pop culture of the 50s definitely formed what I became. I mean, I watched nonstop cartoons. Uh, read, I had stacks and stacks of comic books. Uh, Mad Magazine, I watched sci-fi movies all the time, so that was like pretty much my, my mental state. Right, and that was your, your bridge getting into art, I mean, comic book stuff like that at a young age, you know, because you pretty much, that was your, it led it right into your teenage life, didn't Correct. it? Correct, Yeah. right, right. That's, a, that's amazing. And so the art, the, you started, you went to art school, where'd you go to art school at? Chouinard. Chouinard. Yeah, when it was Chouinard, when it was uh, still downtown. It was in uh, right, right around MacArthur Park there. Now it's CalArts and it's out in uh, Valencia, I think, or something like that. But then it was still, then it was like the, a funky building. And for me at that time, it was like the perfect environment because even though I was getting enough credits to avoid the draft while I, I got into a reserve unit, uh, it was like a big building. And it was like one gigantic party of artists, you know? And it was like sort of a survival of the fittest. It was like you walk in there and everybody is doing art all the time. It was like like being dropped into art heaven. What was music at the time? Like, tell me right now what you're talking about. Going and being feeling like you're going to be, you could be drafted into the military and go fight a war that you're not into. 
the music at the time you were listening to was what? I was listening to all the newest music. I was listening to uh, you know all the British bands. Uh, I mean, the Shrine Auditorium was happening exactly when I was going to art school. I don't know if you heard of the Shrine concerts, yeah. but they had you know Hendrix, Cream, uh, you know the Jeff Beck Group, uh, Blue Cheer, the Buffalo Springfield. I mean, every weekend they would have these gigantic events. I mean, and it was like they had the best bands in the world there. So the music scene, I would say, was was completely off the hook. I mean, it was just and it. And plus, they, they mixed a lot, of, they, they would mix jazz bands. I mean, I went to see, uh, uh, like, Hendrix in San Francisco, and he was playing with uh, that uh, that jazz guitarist. I mean, he was like, you know, so... That, was that at Monterey Pop? Well, I saw Monterey Pop, too. So Monterey Pop was, was, was definitely, like, a, a huge influence. I mean, going to Monterey Pop and seeing... I, I kind of went by accident, because I had taken my girlfriend to see, I think, uh, Otis Redding at the Whiskey A Go-Go. I lived down, you know, down in Oceanside, so I... I had to drive all the way to LA to do it, and I took her. And then when we, we left the uh, Whiskey A Go Go, there was like a big fence, and it had like the names of all these bands. And we're driving down Sunset Boulevard, and I'm going, "Holy crap! What? That's like every cool band in the world." And then at the end, it said Monterey Pop Festival, and it had a phone number. So I called up the phone number, and I got. Uh, they said, "Well, we got tickets. Uh, most of the tickets are sold out. We've got uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Can Heat, and Ravi Shankar." And I said, Robbie Shankar, right. holy, I said, I really dig that guy. It's like, I thought, wow, he's going to be there? That's anyway, awesome. Anyway, so I mean, yeah, no, so I was, And I was that's all Lou Adler did all that. Huh? Right? Lou yeah. Adler did that. Yeah. And he also was, owned the Whiskey A Go-Go at the time. Yeah. yeah. And then what I really a great time that is, right, for music? To be that, yeah. But it's yeah. weird that it's the same, though. It's like the Whiskey A Go-Go, the sign on the, on the Sunset Strip. Right, right. Still going on. Yeah. So that was, that was a great event to go to. And then there was, you know, that was 1967, so you had the Summer of Love going on. So we just decided since we were at Monterey, we'd just drive up to San Francisco. So I saw a lot of my old friends uh, in Haight-Ashbury and hung out there for a little while. But I would say that, that uh, even though it was a cool situation, I thought the drug, the drug thing was, was, it was, it wasn't gonna work. It was just so much, the drugs were just way out of control. And, right. and I'd seen friends of mine in, in the bands, you know, like even in Oceanside, I mean, pe people were starting to shoot heroin and, and uh, it, was, it was like, the cool part of drugs was just really getting like, it was just, they just kept moving with it, right? And they wouldn't stop. It wasn't like, hey, I dropped acid and I got some enlightenment and I want to like, you know, show you what's going on. It was more like, they just kept moving, right? But that was like the love revolution, right? That's, Absolutely, yeah. And that, would you compare that to like what we have now, what they call the conscious community? Was the love revolution back in the 60s? Do you, would you compare those two to kind of different timelines? But this, you know. Same deal. Same deal a little bit? The same deal, except that that was... There's that, different time. In that period was more of an explosion because, like I said, when we talk about the death culture and the war culture, you had, like, an entire generation of people. All those people that were, like, you know, dropping acid and, and having a really good time, they were brought up by parents who only knew the war and grandparents who only knew the Great Depression. I mean, that was, like, literally the thing that kind of hung over all of us. So in the late 50s to the early, very early 60s, before youth culture really broke out, there was that that thing that kind of hung over everything that the the idea of like conforming like it seemed like all of society wanted to conform all the time and so the, the idea of like conforming was where they tried to funnel all the kids and then when they broke out so what you saw in that period like you know from 60s i mean you saw that the period of time that the beatles existed was only what four or five years at the most right right so everything happened in a really truncated period of time so it was almost like when you graduated from high school about the time I did what 64 65 that like everybody was normal and then a year later everybody was like out completely outrageous I mean it was just like 
like an explosion had taken place or something like that. By 1967, it had settled in to a, the gigantic youth movement you saw, you saw, you see in the news, right? I mean, New York had its own scene, San Francisco had its own scene, L.A. had its own scene, right? right? And then all over the world, you had like you know kids in Italy, you had kids in France, like you know smashing barricades and things like that. And then uh, I mean, the, the Tropicalia movement in uh, in Brazil. I mean, literally, the whole world was lit, basically by kids. You know, young kids. But opposing the war. This all was yeah. created because of people opposing the, the war. Di the difference between then and now is the kids had zero power. I mean, even though you look back and you see like tons and tons of kids marching. Right. There was like the the uh, the attitude of regular folks were way against that. I mean, there was times when I'd go, uh, me and my friends would go into a supermarket in Oceanside, and the guy would just throw us out because you know he'd say you, can, you, know, you can't uh, you can't shop here because you got long hair, right? And we go like, the hell with you, dude. It's like, we throw the money on the counter, we take the money, so, you know, I'm gonna call the cops. Say, call the cops. What did yeah. your dad say about your long hair? He was, uh, he was the kind of guy that like adapted a little bit, slowly. You helped sure. him adapt? Huh? You helped him adapt? You guys both like grew together? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was the kind of kid that, wa I walked away from any kind of parental discipline really early. It's not that I, that I tried to be mean to them, but I would not, I just, I decided what I wanted to do and I wanted to do it. Like when I said I wanted to play in a band, they said, well, you know, you can't, you don't have a guitar. I said, I'll just earn the money and get a guitar. And they said, oh, so this is what you want to do. And I said, it's what I want to do, right? And so they let me do what I want to do as long as I could pay for it. So I generally got jobs and then paid for what I wanted to do. Yes, yeah, so too far closer. away. Yeah, let's see if you want to speak a little closer. Yeah. And I would say that, yeah, my mother was more upset about it. My father was, um, he kind of went along with it. That's cool. Yeah, he was, he was, he was a pretty good guy. So at that time, having you know a military father, but living near the beach, your your how do you what do you think your bridge to spirituality was the the music, the art, surfing, you know what do you felt it started it, you know because for me surfing was a big pull, of the ocean. Well, being in the ocean is uh, you know it's it's definitely a spiritual experience. I mean because you're you're you know you're engaged with like random nature. Right, mm. and so you're you're thinking constantly in conjunction with what nature's doing at any given time. So you have to either be part of the dance, or you just you know you just get washed up on the beach. Mm. So there there is uh, that kind of thing. But I wouldn't say that I started out with surfing as a spiritual thing. I started out with surfing because it was really fun. Right, and it was like the, you know, I just I mean I would I would tell the story where uh, we were driving to to uh, to Disneyland when I was a kid, and I'm maybe 12 years old. 11 and a half or something like that. And we were driving up past where Trestles is now, right? Uh, San Onofre area, right? And I was looking out the window because my dad was driving and I saw this Woody, you know? And I saw like two surfers and their girlfriends in bikinis and they had the boards up on the side of the car. And I just looked at these guys in their trunks, you know, and their bronze bodies and their girlfriends and they had their arms around them. And I was just like staring at him and I thought, it was like a movie scene, right? And my father's like, we're going, I'm going with the family. I'm just looking, I'm thinking like, that's, what I want to be, right? Right. I want to be in that scene. I want to be one of those guys. I want to have that girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. I want to have that surfboard. I didn't even know exactly. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know exactly what a surfboard did. I knew I saw guys out there doing it, but I thought it looks kind of difficult because in those days the boards were gigantic, right? right? Long boards, yeah. Right. So when I was like, I started surfing when I was 13, and the board was like 10 foot six board. So I built a gigantic rack on my bicycle and I rode to the beach every day, you know. How old were you when you started surfing? You 13. said 13. That was about yeah. I was about I was sixth grade. But uh, same thing, beach took me away. It was a good place for me to go and open up and not feel, um, you know, when you want to get away, it was the best place for me to get away. 
the yeah. water. I think the yeah the, the the ocean is a great place to get away. I mean you can't you can't get any further to the front of the boat than right at the beach there, right? Right. <laughs> totally. Totally. Did um and over there the, that was Encinitas. Were you Oceanside. in it? Oceanside? How yeah. far is Encinitas? I, from I, lived there? In, I lived in Encinitas too for a while. I lived in Lucadia for a while. Yeah, yeah. all that's, those places. And that's how you, your introduction to Paramahansa Yogananda. Well, that was uh, through uh, Swamis. There was a yeah. This, there's a surf break right there in, surf break in Encinitas. Well, now it's like it's got statues and all kinds of things. But in those right. days, it was like the uh, the Paramahansa Center there, right? And mm -hmm. they, they, he had built it up, I think. Uh, and they had the, the monks that would you know go in there and meditate and they'd walk around so we'd park there and go surfing and in those days they had like the stairs sort of went halfway down the hill so you walk halfway down the hill with your surfboards and then you'd drop them on the beach right and then somebody would go down there and get the boards and then when you came back up somebody would get up there and they'd have to pull the boards back up so the, the stairs only went halfway down they really didn't want anybody there at all but once i got into the you know the, the sort of the uh the psychoactive experiences that uh you know, I, I got into, I began to see something different. And when I saw those guys in their meditation, I, I began to think like, huh, those guys like seem like kind of where I'm going or where I want to go, you know, like, because I, and if, if I dropped acid, I'd want to like sit and just be by myself, you know, and like go inside. And I see that that's kind of what they were doing. So I went in there and I picked up the book and I saw, you know, autobiography of a yogi. And I, and I saw Paramahansa's beaming face and I thought, yeah, that looks right. Right, you know? right. And then I saw these guys sitting there. I said, can I can I sit down? They said, no, just come and sit down, right? And then uh, so I sat down, and I, I started meditating with them, and I could feel the, the, the you know, the spirit in the room and, and uh, the, the commonality of all of us together, like, you know, and I thought, this is kind of like what I'm getting the other way. But I knew that, that the drugs were a dead end. I mean, I, I knew you couldn't just keep dropping acid all the time and getting better and better and better. I knew I'd be turning into those guys that, like, couldn't tie their shoe or, like, you know, be like... <laughs> when, I wanted, when I wanted to go surfing, like all my friends, they'd be sitting there like, let's get stoned again. I said, dude, we got stoned. We've been getting stoned. That's all we do is get stoned. I want to go surfing, right? And it's like, fuck you guys. I'm going to go surfing, right? right? So eventually, I just kind of left I left all that behind. So when I, when I went to Monterey, um, and then I, I went to San Francisco, and I saw everything, and then Blow Up, the movie, came out exactly at the same time, and I stopped in, um, I think, San Jose, and we, we watched Blow Up. So the when I left my band, and I went up there, and I saw Hendrix play, then I went up, I saw the movie Blow Up. Then we, we drove through uh, Big Sur, and I drew pictures and things like that, you know, with my new girlfriend. And, all, and then we, we stopped in Haight-Ashbury and spent a week there. And then when I came back, I was like on another planet. I mean, I was like playing with my band, and, and you know, I went to practice with them, and I said, I just like saw so much music. I said, I, I saw this guy, and I was trying to describe Hendrick's play, and I said, and they said, well, what, how's he play? I said, uh, he plays backwards. Yeah, we were just talking about that today. Just now, me and Omar were talking about Hendrix was played backwards, right? It sounded right. like two people were playing. Yeah, right. Because, and I, and I and like in, at the Fillmore, I got to sit, I mean, you know, in those days, funny. like all the hippies wanted to do was drop ass and eat apples and dance around. So Hendrix is playing. I walked up to the front of the stage, like here, he's standing there, and I watched two sets. You know, and I, so I'm trying to come back and explain to these guys what I'd seen. And they say, well, you know, how does he play? I said, I'm not even sure that this dude even tunes his guitar. I said, I think he just comes out. And I said, he chews gum while he sings. And they're like, nah. I said, I'm telling you, the guy chews gum while he sings. I said, he plays the guitar backwards. I don't mean, it doesn't look like he even reversed the strings. And I said, he just bends the shit to make it work. I said, it's like, it's, it's, he plays stuff. I said, they're not even, I, I was watching the chords. And I said, I couldn't even... I can't even tell what the chords were. I said he just he just kicks it into gear, and I said he's like all over the place. And I said, and I said the weirdest thing is that he plays like that that sort of uh, uh, I don't know what 
I call it like country and western stuff where guys like used to play it, uh, you know, because he played behind his back, which I always thought was like a real novelty. I saw like country guys do that, like at uh, state fairs and things like that, right? Or he played down between his legs or behind himself or played eating his strings and, and then the chicken picking and stuff like that. And I thought, because I thought the guy was like a god. I thought he had come from like another planet, you know, and I knew he'd, he'd been in England, but I didn't know he was like an American paratrooper that had actually played in clubs and things like that. So I'm watching him thinking like, where did he get all these like screwed up novelty techniques while throwing it in with all this godlike guitar playing I'm seeing? So I, I couldn't even explain it. It was just it was beyond you know. So I just sat I just sat and just watched it and I and I tried to tell them about it. And then of course when the album Are You Experienced came out, you know I said this is the guy, this is the guy, like you know. And they're listening to it and they're going like, wow, okay, you know. So yeah, it was transformational. It was yeah. And remember when he played at Monterey. The Who played first. Almost everybody wanted to see The Who. The Who at the time were like the coolest band on earth. I mean, they were like destructive. They busted all their equipment yeah. up and stuff like that. So I felt really bad that I missed The Who, you know, and I had to see this guy because at the time on the radio, Hey Joe was like the Jimi Hendrix song. So mm -hmm. Hey Joe is like the least Jimi Hendrix song there is. I mean, it's like a slow kind of yeah. a, a folk song, right? Right. So I thought, you know, he's going to come out and do that. And then he comes out and does what he does. And then when he, cause, okay, for instance, our band had played Wild Thing so many times that if somebody asks us at a school dance to play it again, I was going to hit him in the head with my guitar, right? Right. So this guy comes out, the god of like whatever, right? And he says, okay, now I want to play a little something. And he says, Wild Thing. And I thought, Wild Thing? <laughs> <laughs> What's he going to do with Wild Thing? <laughs> and then, of course, he proceeded to do what he did with Wild Thing, right? Right. Like it's like, basically made history that like, in some ways, nobody's ever like surpassed that like, you know, throwing the guitar down, lighting it on fire, beating the shit. I mean, you, when they pan across the audience, you see people just like, right? I mean, the whole place was just like, like, what is this guy doing? That's great. We've been talking about him all day today. All, right. day, yeah, all day, yeah. I swear, we just talked about this for, yeah, about a half hour before. Just everything we just spoke, we were talking about this today. So his energy's around. When's his birthday? What's Jimi Hendrix's birthday? It's, I mean, we've been talking all day today. To find that out. But um, I don't know it offhand. Well, he's like, uh, I mean, he's like, he's like Picasso was. I mean, there's not like another Picasso. There's people that are like really good, right? There's not like another Jimi Hendrix. There's not like people you know, say, no. this guy's kind of like Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix basically just blew the whole thing up. And then when he was gone, it was he took whatever he had with him. Yeah. November 27th, 1942. November 27th. Yeah, he's been on the radar today a lot. Plus, wow. he affected that that uh, that really soft look, you know, with the feather boas and all that sort of thing, and then that that hairdo, yeah, and everything about him. And then he played with the the, the two the two English guys. Yeah, because he was living there in Haight Ashbury with all those English guys, wasn't he? He was living that. I thought he would live there in, in England for a while with these guys. Yeah, in England. Yeah, Haight Ashbury. Ashbury. Oh no, not Haight, my my apologies. Yeah, in England with them, not Haight Ashbury, right. not San Francisco. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's it's wild. Hmm. So yeah, that was. So when I when I came back, that was uh, that was basically when I started my life. Yeah, you know, then I was I was kind of on my way. That's so when I came back from uh, from San Francisco, then I, I basically started, uh, you know, basically I, I just I left everything behind. I was like uh, I got in a band that I could actually make money in. I, I just became like a side guy. So instead of like having my own original band, I, I just uh, hired myself out as a, a side man for like you know, really good guitarists or guys, that, you know, uh, that would come to town. I even played in a country western band. When did you feel like you started going deeper in your spiritual path? Was it, was it, would you start tailing off, you know, the, 
the time of you know LSD? Was it right in that time to where you started going deeper into your practice? It's yes, th- that was yeah. I, before that. There wasn't any practice because there wasn't any. Right. There was no vision. Right. So that you know the the. The, the psychedelic experience was for me really visual, you know, like internalized and, and really visual. But at the same time, it uh, uh, it allowed me to project things like uh, better than I would have thought possible. Because previously I could draw, but I would have to kind of think and imagine what I wanted to draw, or maybe look at something and draw it. Like once once I hit like a, a certain plateau with the psychedelics, I could actually project like images exactly as I wanted them. You know, and I could just draw them. I mean, you know, if, if I if I dropped acid or something like that and sat with a blank piece of paper, I could like see endless worlds, and I could hold the endless worlds long enough that I could just sit and just basically fill it. the entire sheet, yeah. almost like tracing it. So, would you say earlier it was like a nuclear bomb went off in your brain? Yeah. <laughs> well, it took it took off all the sidebars because I mean I think when uh, when you're growing up, you have like uh, you have sidebars, you have like things that like you know keep you in you have authority figures you have your parents you have like school you have all those sorts of things religion try, yeah and they all try to keep you in for me religion was just a, a a thing i didn't i never really had religion i mean i started studying religion probably more as an adjunct to the creativity you know at the same time i wanted to understand what i was seeing so i, I felt like i was regurgitating a lot of things from my childhood and I wasn't sure whether that was to good advantage. Obviously, it turned out to be a good advantage because I use them now, you know, the cartoon characters and things like that. But at the time, I wanted, uh, I wanted to be more intelligent. I wanted, like, like, I couldn't expand my mind if I didn't have anything in my mind. That was suddenly my realization. Like, I thought, like, okay, if I keep expanding my mind, I don't really have anything to expand to. It's like, I can't, you know, I would, like, get these ancient visions and things like that, but they weren't mine. At all. Right. So then I started reading things like the Psychedelic Experience, Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, The Way of the White Clouds, uh, Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines, and I found that that uh, those things like gave me ideas, and those ideas seemed to sync with what I was like feeling internally. You know, it wasn't like I was diving headlong into religion, but at the same time I was like finding religion philosophically in tune with like what I was seeing and feeling. Right. Right. Like it right. felt. Natural. Right. I felt good, yeah. And I felt like in order to be an artist, I had to have a philosophy. I couldn't just be like a guy who just went out and painted junk. I mean, I could paint junk, but I needed, I needed a philosophy. And I felt like, like these things and that, what I had seen, were going like, to work together to create like, something that I was trying to say. Like I was trying to like, you know, say something, and I didn't know what it was. Right. You met Eddie through the, art, the whole art world, right? Yeah. How did you guys meet I think Danny will introduce us, right? Oh, really? Yeah, I want to say. A long time ago, right? Yeah, when you were at Atomic Pop. Mm-hmm. Was that in this house over in Sepulveda? That's when be- I lived in the house in Sepulveda. Absolutely, on Valley Vista. Yeah, yeah. Jim worked at a company called Atomic Pop. It was a record label. They they, re- they reintroduced Public Enemy after like 10-year void or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mozik and, and uh, Ben Yacht were there with Blood Abraham. Right. Yeah, and the rest is history. We became good friends. How'd you meet Yogi Bhajan? My name is Yogi Bhajan. Uh, I was going to a place called East West Cultural Center. Uh, I think it was over by uh, where Koreatown is now, somewhere in that area on Western. But I, I was living in Santa Monica, and I had uh, I knew the people there at, at the East West Cultural Center, and I thought it was a great place. And so I just you know, I went there all the time. There was an older woman who ran it, 
I can't remember what the um, the spiritual nature of like the the general teachings there were, but like it was, I think um, it was Sri Aurobindo, and um, people were like doing uh, uh, trips to Pondicherry. Have you heard of Sri Aurobindo? No. These people seemed to, they, uh, they they were definitely into Sri Aurobindo, and he was like uh, he was like an Indian guru, and uh, I think he had a, a, an ashram in Pondicherry. And they would so these that would probably be the basis of like what the East West Cultural Center was about, and they had a lot of other things. I mean, there was a picture on a wall of uh, Rabindus Tagore, and oh. huge picture. I mean, if you like in touch with Yogi Bhajan, he probably remembers that picture. And it just said Tagore below. You know, I named my son Tagore because I, every time I'd walk in the door, I'd see this giant picture, and it just said Tagore. And he had his hand behind his back, and he just had this like look on his face, and I just kept looking at it, and going like. <laughs> and so when. My wife got pregnant and she said, what do you think we should name the child? I said, Tagore. <laughs> she goes, you mean like the picture of the guy on the wall? I said, yeah. So Yogi Bhajan just showed up, uh, I don't know, kind of just unannounced. They just said, this, this, uh, he's here from India. It sounded like he was there for just a short period of time. Uh, what year I, was this? This was like right in the beginning of 68? No, it had to be late 68, beginning of 69, I think. Right. Yeah, late 68, probably. <clears throat> Somewhere around there. And... Uh, he did a lecture there, and I was, I was impressed by the lecture. I mean, at that time, I was looking for discipline. I, I wanted, I felt like I had to like rein in my, you know, explosive nature, and he brought that kind of uh, military discipline. I mean, he was, uh, he seemed stern, and yet he seemed to be the kind of guy that wanted to. Um, it seemed like he wanted students. He wanted to like get something going on. You know, I got the feeling that like, like he was a smart guy. And he knew that like a lot of people were coming over from India and, and they were getting you know like uh, a foothold here, and he was going to be one of those guys. You know, I thought that he was you know, and but he seemed uh, different than others. I mean, he definitely wasn't like the Maharishi with the long hair. He was this guy was like like a crack disciplinarian. More know? thunder, huh? a lot more thunder. <laughs> a lot more thunder. Yeah, he yeah, seemed. That's what I call it. Yeah. So I mean, with my military background, he seemed like the right kind of guy because he had that kind of like there was no nonsense with him. Right. It wasn't like. You know, like you couldn't say, well, maybe. There was no, may you wouldn't say maybe. Like, are you going to come to my class, Jim? Uh, maybe. That, you wouldn't say it. You would say, yeah. yes or no, you're going to come to his class, right? Right. And that was the way my dad was. It was like there wasn't any maybes or grays or anything like that. It was like, you know, did you do that? Uh, yes. <laughs> and to, to watch now what Kundalini Yoga has grown into. Yeah. It's, it's got to be pretty amazing to yeah. see it. Yeah. It's a huge thing. But he was, uh, he fit in really well. I mean, I thought that he was, he was a great guy. Like I said, he, he got me my uh, first big job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. That's, yeah, it was like uh, there was a rock festival, and they made him the spiritual guru, and they said they needed an art director. And at the time, I was like still in art school. Uh, I was working a little bit, but I hadn't really done very much. And he saw my work, and he thought that I was he thought I was a good artist, you know. And he said, "Bring Jim in, like you know, let him be the art director." And I thought, "No, wow, this is cool." And I thought. You know, I, I didn't think there was any chance they'd let me be the art director, but I thought they had so much respect for Yogi Bhajan that they would, they might, right? Right. So I just kind of pushed myself in. I said, yeah, I can handle it, you know, even though I had no idea I could handle it at all. Because, like, you know, suddenly I'd be at a desk, I'd be looking at portfolios, trying to decide, designing posters. It was way beyond what I was doing at the time. But he trusted me, and, and he got me in. So I made a lot of connections, and that, like, basically moved me to a much higher level. So... He was cool. That's, that's the big thing that really sticks in my head. And of course, him twisting my foot that time, I've told you that story, right? Well, no, no but the, the, rate, the way I met you was because he told me that story and I'm like, I got to meet this guy. Yeah. I was going through my trip. I didn't, I didn't know who Yogi Bhajan was. I mean, I, 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 mean, I didn't know. I, I 
was brought to him by by Eddie, who brought me to Tage, um, who's one of was one of his first students. Um, but when I heard the story about you, because Eddie knew what I was going through, I was like, I got to meet this cat. And that's how I was introduced to you. We went to Nobu and had lunch, and right. you told me the story about him giving you your first job. I right. think with also with, uh, it was with graphics too, wasn't it? Or was it with graphics or art? It was, it was more of a graphic job. Yeah. It was a graphic thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was like, yeah. like being the art director. Yeah. And it also it got me into art a lot faster because I looked at all the portfolios and I was able to see that like the artists, at, first, I, at that time I really wanted to be a photographer more than an artist because I just liked... I just liked the scene a little bit better. And I, I started looking at the portfolios and the photographers in those days were good. I just, one after another, I thought, that's good, that's good, well, that's good, that's really good, well, damn. And then I started looking at the artists and they were all just like stoner hippies, like doing like really shitty psychedelic stuff. And I thought, so I told the guy, I said, I'll do the posters, right? Yeah, do it yourself. Yeah. Right. So it worked out well. Tell us the story about your foot. What happened when yeah, you Yeah, yeah, you just want to say that, yeah. 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 Okay, so I was, I was attending classes with him and he was... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you did tell me this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was, I was walking through Westwood and I stepped off a curb and I twisted my ankle really bad. I couldn't even walk, right? But like I said, Yogi Bhajan was such a disciplinarian that I drove over to the class and I showed up and I said, you know, I can't, I can't do any class tonight. I said, but I showed up just because, you know, he didn't really have a very big class at that time and I felt bad because I was like one of the students and I thought like, you know, if there's a big empty spot where Jim's going to be, it's like, you know, he's going to feel bad, right? So I showed up and I was going to sit there and just kind of like, you know, be a cool guy. And he says, oh, well, let, me, let me see. Your, he said, what's wrong? He said, oh, my, I said, this is twisted bad. He said, well, let me see it. So he takes it and he plays it like that. And he just does his snap, right? And I keep telling him, but it's like, basically, it was like one of those kind of things where uh, a guru like throws a rock and hits you in the head and knocks you out. It was like, it was so extreme that like, it went through my whole body. It's like a big electric bolt. And then he goes, so how do you feel now? And I said, my foot works. I said, but like the rest of me feels terrible. I said, <laughs> what, did you, what was that, right? And he said, I just, something I know how to do. That was the thunder. Yeah. It was funny. What? Tage, so was this, this kid, I don't think he may have been about maybe 15, 14 years old. And uh, he was having a Kundalini awakening in the class where he freaked out, like passed out when it hit the floor. Oh, really? Yeah, he just hit the deck. I've seen people start screaming before. Like I've seen some pretty way out stuff when if people lit up in class. And so everybody kind of started backing up. They want to give him air. And Tage walked up to him and said, bring him to the side. And she just looked at him and she's like, look at me. Look at me. She put his hand up and she cracked him. Like <laughs> she cracked him in the chest. Pow! And she looked at him like, and she got his attention. And she goes, you see, she brought him out. He was so centered so quickly. Because yeah. it wasn't just like a crack like she hit him. She did something. Something else was inside that, the end of her hand because he came to real quickly and was right, right back. Yeah, right on his feet. Real quick. It was pretty interesting, yeah. Definitely when Jim was talking about how Yogi Bhajan was, you know, really strict and, and forceful, I guess, in, in his method. It reminds me of Tage sometimes because sometimes Tage can be very, oh, like, yeah. you know, don't well, I get think too whimsical. She, she brings it back in. She's like, all right. I think that he was... I don't know the right word. It was he was right the exactly he was supposed to be with her because she's perfect in, in what she's doing. But I mean, he was tough on her. Yeah, he was. Her whole her whole thing, you know, and, and he knew she needed to have that that strength. But it's, somebody like him, you, you, I think back about the stories that I hear and the things that he did and how he just had that knowing, he, you know, about everything that he did. You know, just amazing to me. He was he was impressive. I thought uh, you know when I met him that. He was the right guy for the job. You know, he, <laughs> he came from an ancient culture, and he had not only 
like he wasn't just like a, like a spiritual guru that you had no idea. He was this is a guy who like you know he carried a lot of a lot of, a lot of weight with him, like you know all, all of his experiences, like in his work with the Indian Army and all that sort of thing. I mean, he had done a lot of things. So this guy was like well into his career but he's not and he also he's not your stereotypical like guru just what you just said an army military guy it was like i guess the equivalent of like the tsa is what he worked for in india and he was like the the captain like the head guy and decided he needed to bounce and come over here and teach the west kundalini yoga and they were pissed yeah they're pissed like what are you doing and he's like the west needs it more than anybody we need to help them and that's what he presented himself that way too he presented himself as a you know like he knew what he wanted yeah he didn't mess around yeah, which no, I mean, I, I mean, to think about it, and you look back, if you trail everything back, it's it's amazing, and what he's doing, what you know, and what he's doing now. I mean, for me, I was just a street kid. That's how me and Eddie met, and you know, I, I was raised very uh, religious. My mom was Catholic, but I wasn't. I was a spiritual guy. I believed in, I guess, money. Yeah, I believed in money. Is what yeah. I believed in. So. Everything for us was pretty black and white. It's yeah. like, I can touch it or I can't touch it. Exactly. That's it. I can have it or I can't, I can't have it. it. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to take it. You know, it was, very, it was very physical, you know, very one-dimensional for us. You know? Yeah. Faith. It, we didn't have too much faith, you know. It's just, you know, yeah. That's just the way I saw it, you know, is what I see is what I knew. And so when I experienced um, him communicating with me and I knew he was not here, I had to figure out, but when I figured out of who he was and what he did, that took me a long time to kind of grab, to understand the gravity of what he did and what he was about. And then what was the purpose of, you know, communicating with me? Like, who the fuck am I? But, you know, I understand it now much better. And um, it's definitely fascinating. And I feel that Kundalini Yoga, um, and what he brought here is, is something that can help the world. I mean, I know that the for what I go, what I went through, and what people go through from from for, with substance abuse, with you know any kind of mental, what they call illness, call it mental wellness, whatever it is, that you know it doesn't have to be Kundalini yoga. That was just that's just my thing, you know. Maybe people find some another type of yoga or something like that works for them. For me, that's what, what it worked. And if you ask me, that's what I would tell you to do, you know. Um, but such an important thing for, I think, our human body and the balance of who we are spiritually, you know, and, and, and this uh, experience that we're having as humans as well to help us navigate through this energy that we pick up on. And that's what I actually learned, you know, through my practices with Tage is, is understanding it and that energy and the flow of energy um, and that the teachings that, that he, even after when my mom passed, I, I couldn't. I couldn't grasp, I was losing, like I couldn't, that was my whole thing, I couldn't gauge what was happening. And that's what I think what shock is, is you know, you, you don't have a good solid, found, like, you're, like you feel like you're about to fall, but you're yeah, not you falling. Your footing. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, I, I started listening to his lectures over, I just read over and over and over and over and over. I didn't stop for the past two days, over and over. And it just, it was what I needed to listen to. It just, it relaxed me. And just the things that he said and, you know, the outlook of his voice saying it in that tone, you know, and, and then feeling it made made those things kind of for me really um, feel into it in a different way to look at it. And I, I was talking to my little brother who was just like talking about how, 
maybe not suicidal, but he was using every word but that word. Yeah. You know? And I just I just didn't feel that. I felt quite the opposite. You know, and the, and I felt that opposite was brought on by listening to things that he was saying and my approach and his 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 perception on on, on death and and life, because that's what I was listening to. And uh and experiencing it, but experiencing it and and being grateful for it. And so I was able to look at that experience of my mom dying and however that everyone else looked at it and just look at it from a point of love and that she's now with me again. So I didn't feel that she was taken away or I lost a memory. I actually, like in the beginning we were talking about it, I felt for me was gaining all these memories and love and to carry that forward for the belief is because what we do have is those memories. That's all we do have. And so to carry those memories and keep that memory alive and that's intention and love. You know, and that's, that's I think, that that little bit of um, something that I needed and I, I got in his lectures over the past couple of days. And uh, I hadn't seen my teacher in about a month because I just was going through some other things. But I went today and it was, it was good to be there and to get back and it really straightened me out. So for me, yoga and kundalini and what brought me to you and why I'm here now is that man and his spirit. Um, Interestingly enough, I'd, I'd actually forgotten about him. I mean, I, I had him in my memory, but at the same time, I was in a health food store and I saw Bajan tea, you know, and I was, I was like shopping. I figured out, I was like, Bajan tea. I remember that name. And I look it back and they had the picture of him on the back. I thought, whoa, so he, he really made it, right? Guy like, you know, and I, I looked him up and I thought, damn, he did really, really well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was doing just fine, yeah. Yeah, because I, you know, I was always like wondering, like, you know, what would happen to Yogi Bajan, right? Because I, I didn't, hadn't followed him after, you know, I just went on to whatever I did. But then I saw the tea and I thought, he did really well. He How recently was that? Huh? How recently did you see the tea? 15 years ago, maybe, or something like that, yeah. The Yogi Tea and his call security service was huge. What? Did, yeah, yeah, I didn't even realize. There's so many different things. He had so many different businesses and things he was doing. But that, for me, because what you said and how you, because when I look at you, you look like a, like a dude, you know? The guy, like, you know, like a dude dude. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt that when I picked up on this energy... <laughs> Uh, well, what I, what I meant by that is I, when I started picking up on this energy that most of the people I saw that picked up on energy was either gay or they were w- women. And I just, yeah. so I didn't really know, identify if I saw a conscious community or if I saw a yoga class, I saw gay dudes and women. That's what I associated. I didn't, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, that part of it, uh, was just a disconnect for me. You know what I mean? It, not understanding that. I just lost my train of thought. Yeah, I was wondering where so, you're going with that. Like, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, mean, yeah, I mean, art art had a lot to do with uh, you know, feminine quality. I think that like uh, well, to be uh, a male uh, and do art, you have to be in touch with your male and female side. I mean, you can't really, you can't be very complete. I think as uh, I mean, I couldn't have been like the same kid I was and like gone where I I have gone without without being more sensitive to the feminine side of life as opposed to, you know, like not being afraid of it, like, you know, like accepting it and being more of a, a I don't know, mentally transgender in some ways. Wow, that's a great, that's a... Right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so... Mentally transgender. It is dope. I'm going to write that, dope. that was great. And yeah. I think that's that's important. In the beginning, uh, before all these experiences and things like that, I resisted that because, you know, when I was, they'd say, hey, Jim, you got some art talent. You know, you should go, like, to the, they have these, like, Sunday art things, you know. So I go there. There'd be, like, a bunch of old ladies, like, painting and things like that. And I think, 
this is my fate. Right. This is my tribe. Right. <laughs> well, the, well I, where I lost myself earlier back was is saying that the persona, the personality that I knew of how Yogi Bhajan lived his life and that, you know, having that mili- military background, he was more of a man's man from what I saw and what I, you know, gathered and the way he conducted himself and the way he moved through the world, you know? So that's what I meant. It was easy for me to identify with the way and his thoughts and beliefs because it just seemed very much more natural to the way I understood the world. Meaning most, he didn't, like back then when my parents were into what they were doing, like they looked uh, like um shakalaka um type shit. You know what I mean? Like the the guys playing the drums, what are they called? The Hare Krishna dudes. So, you know, that's always the thing I depicted with spirituality. Not that, not somebody like him. Yeah, no doubt. Like I look at anything of him now, I think like Superman, like it's just a different perception than when I was a kid thinking about people banging on drugs saying um shakalaka um or what do they say? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Hare Krishna. The Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Rama. Yeah. One thing for me when I, you know, I started doing uh, privates with Tage, you know, and when I first kind of got opened up, right, I, my whole thing was I didn't feel worthy, you know. I, I hadn't had any faith or any kind of spiritual belief at all since my mom passed away. Like, I left God and I, I tried to, I, I remember being in my room when I lived on La Brea and third you know, drunk one night, just like begging God to come in the room so I could sock him in the face for taking my mom. And this was like 15 years after she had gone, you know, passed, right? right? But when I was taking privates with Tage, I was like, I'm not worthy. Like, I'm not like them. Like, you don't know what I've done, where I've been. Like, I'm not like that guy, you know, the, the typical guy that you see in class, like Tyler, you know, or, and she was like, you know what, Eddie? She's like, you're equally, if not more valuable to the community than those guys. Cause we have all kinds of those guys. We don't have very many of you. And the spiritual community needs spiritual warriors, not just the airy, hippie, you know, new age yogi type person. And when she said that to me, it like really cracked my head open. I was like, that's, that's, that's me. Like, I get it. You know, she said, she said it's okay to be hard, you know, just stay connected. That's, that's, and that's what I was trying to, that's what I was saying is that I feel the more that it, it's talked about and accepted by guys like us and can talk to younger kids and people like they were coming up like us, that being able to talk about death and things that people don't feel comfortable talking about because it scares them. And it scares them because they're not being taught the right way. And I'm not saying my way is better or not better. I'm not asking anyone to believe me. All I'm saying is that I'm telling you something and you'll either feel into it and know it, and that's all you can go on is what you feel. And, and, and I feel just by you know everyday normal dudes talking about it if you're an athlete if you're an artist a musician to talk about it to where it's not so taboo you know because really my experience led me to a mental institution and to see what was happening in these mental institutions to people that were going through a spiritual situation because we're all spiritual beings having human experience and i said it sounds but it's true from people that uh substance abuse People do that to medicate themselves. You start hearing voices. How many times you hear some hear voices? Well, I said the same thing. I hear voices, which I shouldn't have said. I feel voices. Yeah. Right when I said I was fucked, as soon as I said it, what'd you say? I heard I heard him say it, right. but I was done. At that point, he said it. I was schizophrenic, and then I was done. I was labeled crazy. Um, and it's back in the 60s when people were gay, they did the same thing. Ah, oh, they're crazy. They're losing their mind. And it's so easy to kind of forget about people like that because if they lost their mind, they're not even part of society anymore and they're treated like that. Um, So to go through an experience like that and to go to a Western hospital that you feel safe in, completely safe, and to go and them have not any fucking idea what to do with you 
and you're looking to people and your family to help you and not have that help, that's scary. And this, we're like, this is, this is modern day. This is where we live. Like UCLA, like, you know, so, you know, and the reason for, you know, I feel, you know, I feel that a lot of people artistically are tapped into that vibration, whether it be music, whether it be art, whether it be athlete. You know, I think that we all channel in different ways because we're, like I said, me and Eddie talk about, we're all antennas, you know, and how we get that information from art, you know, from music and, and how we distribute our art to the world, you know, and, and make our change or make our, our, you know, our stand creatively. What makes us beat, you know, we're all artists. I mean, I can't draw worth a ship, but I still feel like an artist, yeah. you know. The art of making money. <laughs> the art of make the art of spending money, the art of giving money away. <laughs> you know, I, I think I learned. You know, that's it's all of it. It's all yeah. the above and and the the lessons of of going through and the energies of money, and the things that you do. That's I mean, that's I think for me is the balance of where I'm where I am now and and looking at how I got here. That's why I was like saying to my mom. Um, it was actually before she died. Thank thank God I got to say this before she passed. I was. It was in, in a, an interview, and I, I called my mom. I was like, Mom, I love you. I love you. And she was like, what are you tripping on? What are you on, mushroom? What are you tripping on? I was like, no, Mom, I, I just feel it. I, I just want to call you. I just want to tell you how much I love you. And she was like, what, what's going on? And I, and I remember just looking down and just going, I think I love myself. Yeah. And when that came over my body, it was like almost taking off a shit sandwich. It was all the victimization that I blamed her and my family and everything that happened to me my whole life went away. It's that thing that Eddie said, he felt not worthy because the way society makes you feel, you go into a place where the first thing you think is you're not worthy. You don't, you, you don't believe in yourself. Well, first thing you do, if you love yourself, you're going to be, I'm worthy. I belong to be here. I love myself and I'm going to love someone else even better because I know how to, I know how to treat myself right. Yeah, Tate says it a lot of times in class. She's like, it's not your parents' fault. Get over what your parents did to you when you were a kid. You're a grown-up. It's time to live your life. It's hard, though, because you hear that and you're like, but you don't know. Well, because society teaches us to have crutches and have limitations and, and medicate because of the problems that we have as, when we were kids. or you know, Instead of following our intuition you know, to a better place on our own, it's like we're going to show you how to do that through medicine or through uh, therapy. Right. You know, right. You know, it's, it's like those, I feel that with, uh, these things and therapy and medicine and all these different things, I feel that if we were disconnected for a while from phones and didn't have power or something like that, that we would be forced to deal with one another and to understand and look at ourselves and start to really look at our instruments and pay attention to one another to really pay attention to one another. Because I think that, that that's the thing, is that we're so dis... We say we're get connected, get connect. We're so disconnected, it's ridiculous. I mean, really. Yeah, for sure. I don't I mean, know if we just went off base, but I'm just saying as no, far no, as... No. One thing I was thinking about when Jim was talking about watching Jimi Hendrix, right? And being able to walk right up to the stage and the difference between music now and then, right? You're lucky because you experienced those experiences and now you, we go to Coachella... And right. it's like a completely different experience, you know? Right. Like, I'll never forget, we saw Royal Blood, and we were standing talking to Raymond on the side of the stage, and I'm like, man, let's go check this band out. And you're like, oh, yeah, they're pretty cool. And it's two kids in this band, and it sounded like six guys up there, right? Right. They were loud. But it must be, it must be 
it must be interesting to have been around when people were really connected, you know, when you were actually in, engaging each other at a concert or spending time versus on your, on your smartphone. Yeah, you didn't have a smartphone. So obviously, yeah, when you went somewhere, you paid attention to it, right? Well, yeah, I just, I just you know, you see it every day. I mean, I, I watch, I don't watch TV at all anymore. And I just feel like, you know, a, a great, I saw this um, Netflix show last night, it just came out called like The Big Hack. There's something like that, but it talks about the whole situation of being hacked um, for the election for Donald Trump and, and uh, Senator Cruz and how they did it. But the thing is that they're talking about is the connection that everybody had and how they were to infiltrate the United States in, in, in making this, this election go a certain way. And it was because we're all so connected and they're able with that connection to understand our moods and our pulses and the things that make us tick. Yeah. So what they do is they drive this information to us to drive us to do certain things to make decisions a certain way. That's kind of, you know, that's cyber terrorism, really. I mean, yeah. when I looked at that shit, I was like, wow. So I think that that, you know, being so connected, look what it's doing. It's really giving this more control to a situation to where I think humanly we have to understand and know who we are inside and the control that we have, you know, versus being connected to like a situation like that. I mean, one thing you got to remember is that people are going to be, you know, people have been dumbasses for a long time. I mean, when I was a kid, they were dumbasses. In the 60s, there were a lot of dumbasses. It's like, Having cell phones and things like that is not making anybody particularly any dumber than they were in, in the 60s. I mean, when I was watching Hendrix, there were a lot of people that were not watching at all. They had dropped acid and they were like dancing around in circles eating apples or something like that or like, <laughs> you know, playing with flowers in their hair and things. I mean, I was like more disciplined. I really wanted to see what was going on and I, I really, I admired the music. I played in a band, so I really wanted to watch this guy. I'd seen him at Monterey, and, but there was like, when you think about uh, when the kids were shot at Kent State, I mean, they did a poll afterwards, like 65% of Americans thought it was a good idea that the National Guard opened up at Kent State. I mean, that's like 65% of America saying that it's like okay to shoot our kids at college mm. if they protest. That was, you know, that was like 1972, 71, right? Right. So I things, was two. Huh? I was two. Yeah, things have not, I mean, Nixon got elected twice, right? I mean, we've, we've always lived in like really weird times. Yeah. It feels like I feel like it's almost the same. T if you look at the period of back where we were back then, like the war and the, the, the like the, the you know, like feeling uncomfortable, what's happening in our world. It feels very similar to what it was back then. It's all cyclical. Yeah, very sure. cyclical well, they're, with they're, war and all the shit they're doing. They're assassinating a lot less people now. Like what's happening? They kill the good. They kill the good and let the bad live. I don't understand that. Well, I mean, I don't. In those days, I mean, yeah, you had like, you had, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, you had Bobby Kennedy, you had the Kennedy, you had uh, Malcolm X. I mean, bang, 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 one after another. And it was like demoralizing for people. I mean, I, I remember like the night that Martin Luther King was killed, I was like uh, shopping in a store and it came on the radio, you know, and it's like, I, I was dull. I couldn't even, and then I lived right near the, uh, the ambassador and I was like, I had to go to a, um, I was like going down to Long Beach because I had to do my active duty for the summer. And I was on the freeway, at Harbor Freeway, and the thing came on. I knew that Bobby Kennedy had just won the, the California, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, primary, mm -hmm. right? And I knew that they had a big party like in the neighborhood somewhere. And I'm on the freeway and the, the, the radio comes on and says, Bobby Kennedy's dead. I'm like, what? Like, King, Kennedy? I mean, uh, how many, who's left, right? They, they got to, you know, there was nobody left to kill. So it was a demoralizing time, even though the music was great and there were a lot of spiritual gurus and, and things were like moving forward, 
there was things moving backwards almost equally as fast. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, the universe is like projecting out and going backwards all at the same time. It's, it's, it's like, even now, as we sit at the table, we talk about it, and we, you know, we're kind of all true seekers. We want to, like, move things forward. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot of things moving backwards while we sit here. All the time, and you, yeah. I mean, to think about being in the time where we're at, and not have a medical system that that would actually look to fix a problem that we know that we're having. And it sounds I say it, it's just, but to me, because I'm a pretty normal guy, like I, I only went to the doctor if I needed something, and even if I, I needed, I still didn't go. So the only reason why I went to them is because I promised my family I'd go because they said I was saying wild shit. So I ended up going. And then to actually go look at them and go think that like, okay, they're probably going to help me. And to, it, it was so the opposite of that, that it's to think of the other people that are in mental institutions, homeless people. Think about homeless people that are, on, that, that are homeless now, that are on the street, and, and then they're having mental things or spiritual situations they're going through, and they actually need our help in a different way. They're, it's real. Imagine what they're saying is actually real. And the last thing you want to be told is you're fucking crazy. Yeah. It makes you more mad. And then you start looking crazy. So it's just we have to have a different way of how we're approaching it and approaching us each other as humans because we all, all of us are, are having these mental wellness situations. We all, it's a polarity planet, you know what I mean? Without bad, you don't know what good would be. You know, so, I mean, think about it. Everyone's like, oh, I want to have a perfect life. I want this great. I want that. It's like, well, let's slow up a minute. Let's just know that we have the tools to go through bad situations so that we can appreciate the good. And that's the balance, really, of what this planet's about, is the balance in between that. And as men and women, this balance between heaven, man, and earth, and how we make decisions and how we treat one another. Because mm-hmm. I feel, I mean, ultimately, man's here to have a union with God and women. And that's what we do, and to have these lessons and then to take it to the next place we go. And I think that that's an amazing thing to have, to have good, to have bad, to learn from it. You know, just to look at it in a different way. It's that we're always so prone to look at things and victimizing ourselves and looking straight into the darkness it's just the easy way to do it but right behind you is the light it's right there and so as you start to turn and you see that and you start to go wait a second without that i would never have that light it doesn't exist so what you're trying to do is 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 i feel is find tools whatever that may be and for me it was kundalini yoga to help me get through the day-to-day shit that i deal with that we live with that, that's, that's, that's being conducted because if we're going through it again we're going to go through it again in 2,000 more years right and we'll be here again and so hopefully we'll be a lot further along you know as, as, a, as, as a community as a collective community a conscious community and I think that's uh, that's really what we are is to, to be here to create community to teach one another to move forward and learn you know I think that ultimately and with art music and these things is, is what God's given us to get through so that we have laughter, love, smile, colors, and senses that, that give us this life that, that, we, that we lack and give the grateful and the respect back to just go and be grateful for everything that we're having. And then, then as soon as that clicks and you have that, you start to go like, damn. And it just changes the way you feel about other people. I mean, I guess it did for me. Um, and it helped me. It helped me. I don't say be a better person, but whatever that word is, just to to be a nicer person, you know? And the, the art and music has been part of my life, you know, my whole life. And, mm-hmm. you know, right up when I got out of a mental institution, getting led to Eddie to do that first art show when we met you right. was, I don't know why it seemed, but, you know, it just seemed like the right thing to do. 
Yeah, you know, we should probably have Jim do the creative for what, for what we have coming up. We should. Actually, you know. We should. Jim, what do you say? We need you to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what He's busy. Done? He's always, what albums have you done? You've done like so many different like album covers and designs. Like we didn't talk anything about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, the Beach Boys, the Beastie Boys, uh, uh, Beck, uh, Neil Young, uh, the Almond Brothers, uh, Robbie Krieger. I was like watching the doors the other night and I realized that you know, I, I did Robbie Krieger's first album cover. Wow. Right after, the, right after uh, Jim Morrison died, he did his first album. That's a lot it. of album covers. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm going in, in and out of album covers. It's, it's what, are you, what are you working on right now? Right now? Oh, I just did Iration. Iration. Right. Um, <clears throat> probably the biggest thing I'm working on right now is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I did uh, portraits of uh, Margot Robbie, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and uh, Brad Pitt. But they needed to be done, um, I wouldn't say like an old style. They wanted me to mix my style was something that seemed more traditional, right? So it looked like it could have been, could have maybe been done in 1969, but it had to use the, you know, the star portraits on it. So they gave me the, you know, the, the, the stars to work with, and I just crafted them together. And they had to be run through all the, the processes, and uh, Tarantino had to look at them. And then they're they're animated. So I, what I did was I created the print. They're going to be prints, and they're also going to be used in advertising. And then I animated them so that like there's the music that is indigenous to each of the stars and it plays and then the thing actually draws in so it looks like it's being painted and then the star's portrait comes on and then the, the voice comes on. So it's like a, a multifaceted uh, promotion for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What'd you think of that movie? I just saw it this weekend. I, you, I, I haven't seen it yet. Huh? I haven't seen it. Which well, I, I, I like it a lot. Did I you? Mean, I, was, I was in Hollywood in 1969. I mean, I worked like in Westwood, you know, right, right up the street from that theater she went to. It was interesting what I did. I, I just, I, I couldn't, you know why I was so excited the night before I, I went and watched Inglorious Bastards just to get going, just to be all hyped up. Huh? And that movie was so amazing, but I just, I didn't, I didn't leave there. I just kind of, I lost it at the end of it. I was excited to see it, but I just, know if I, I left there. Well, the end You'll was, see it. It's, it's worth seeing. It's Tarantino's last movie, yeah. they're saying. But, yeah, I would say, you know, when you, when you talk about spirituality, the, uh, to me, the, the big thing about it, I mean, mine is different than yours in a sense that mine is like this, this sort of ongoing journey where I've gone from one thing to another. Like, I don't have, I don't find a spot where I just ever really stop. I just keep moving on. I mean, right now I do yoga and I'd probably consider myself a secular Buddhist, like I say in there, you know. It's, it's like, I, I find a resonance in Buddhism, but at the same time, I'll never reach enlightenment. I mean, I knew that back, you know, in the early 70s. I mean, even when I met Yogi Bhajan, I realized that like I was, I was stuck in this enigma because I knew I wanted to be a big artist. I mean, I really wanted to be like an important artist. I had like these ideas, and I thought that I potentially had a skill to, to do them, but I also realized that I would have to engender an enormous ego in order to be able to actually do that. Like, the thing is, in order to be like an artist or a musician, I think, to really be serious about it, you have to be somewhat selfish. You have to be selfish with your time. You have to be unspiritual, at least in the pursuit of like the actual art. So, most religion is like about shedding the ego, you know. Right. Especially Buddhism is like, like I could I could go to like a Buddhist guy and tell him everything about myself right now and say that I realize that I can never reach enlightenment just because I never could shed my ego. I, I just like it was sort of like I gave up on it. I, I thought like I can't shed my ego and be a really good artist at the same time. It's like I it doesn't work for me. I had to I had to be egotistical in order to. Um, 
I don't know, like fulfill my vision. I had to like think that that you know what I was what I was coming up with. Basically, I could see my ego like constantly moving forward all the time. Even though I was like trying to push it back. When I did artwork, it was like my ego would come forward again. So I could never really get rid of it. And I realized that like I thought, okay, I could still be you know a truth seeker, but at the same time, I understand that like you know enlightenment is like beyond me. It's not going to happen in this lifetime. Maybe the next time I'll come back and something else. But like I'm stuck in this sort of semi-asshole state. I'm going to be kind of like that guy, you know, like always <laughs> looking for something more, but at the same time understanding there's a limitation of what I can actually achieve spiritually. Right, well, the ego, that, and what you're saying is shedding it, and what you said is it was a big, a big question and concern for me, meaning that like the things and the way I was used to living my life when this happened, because with money and the things I was used to, like what made me tick, I was like, I can't do that because all those things were, the things I used to do it would be, I feel like manipulating people, the things, so, you know, ego and the, you know, the, what made, the things that would make me get the things I needed and how I was up doing it, right. right? But it wasn't really that or shedding the ego. It was just looking at the ego as a sword and knowing when to put it down and when to use it or like acting as if it's a shadow behind you because the further that you move away from it, the bigger that shadow gets. So it's like a wall you have to stay close to because that, that your ego, that shadow, as you move out in front of it, it starts to get bigger than you and it's just an illusion. And so then you start to believe some of the shit you start to think. So for me, going that, that spirituality was just not shedding the ego, but understanding it like as a sword and knowing when to put it down or when to use it because you need to have it. I feel yeah. it's, I think so, yeah. I just think it's how you use it and how you, you apply it. Like anybody, everybody has, like things are really good at and things are bad at. It's knowing what their volume and when to turn it down. It's usually the person's, like what they're really good at is also their fucking, what they're a nightmare at too. Yeah. It's not, not, you know what I mean? It, yeah. And it's that, that's the, the balance. So that's also with your ego. It's, it's there, it's there for a reason. God didn't fucking make a mistake. It, it, it's yeah. there for, this is just my opinion, is just to, you know, to get on it like a horse and know when to, you know, to kick it and when not to. And a few of these people on, 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 you know, on my spiritual journey have like, you know, actually called me to task on it, saying that like, you know, you should use this power for good. You know, you, you do album covers. You know, you sell rock bands. You sell products. You know, and it's like, you could you could sell religion. You could sell like spirituality. You could like use that power for good. You know, like why don't you do that? And I didn't have a really good answer for it. It's I like, think that's why you're here, though. I mean, I think that the reason why we wanted to interview you is because of that, that like, you know, if I look at this, is, is your spiritual, uh, the, the way you move through the world, your spirituality, with music, with art, it, to me, is interesting, you know, and, and, and how they even look at the people you run into. You obviously are vibrating on a certain level. Right. You know, you don't bump into the people that you're bumped into and, and have these things, on, I, I feel, unless you're vibrating. I'm not saying at a higher level than other people. I'm not, all I'm saying is that you're definitely on a, a channel with a lot of other elevated souls. Yeah. I mean, one th I'll tell you this. Like, Jim's been a, a really good friend for over the past 10 years or, or longer. But one really big moment for me that, like, made me realize that I was on the right, I was in the right vibration, and, and we both were. We went to a meeting at Golden Voice, and we walked into Paul Tillet, the founder of Golden Voice's office, and there's one of his posters for Fugazi right behind, sitting right there in his office. And it was like a God shot. I was like, I'm in the right place at the right time with the right people right now. Huh? It was, that, was, that was a good moment, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he might have set it up that way, so we, you know. Yeah, but, you know. It, it is funny about life. Like, you know, when I first met you and you were, you were on about Yogi Bhajan, and I thought, like, 
yeah, that was a cool moment. But I, you know, but you're right. It's like it's like you're you're on a trail and you and you're you, know, you hit a crossroads and then you you meet a guy like Yogi Bhajan, you hit another crossroads. I mean, Ravi Shankar, like I, I you know I said he did school and like one time I was walking down the hall and he walked by me and you know and he bit back to me and I thought like. Ravi Shankar just like knows that I'm on Earth, you know. It's like that's all I need. <laughs> no, yeah. Right. So those kind of things, right? Yeah, no, because you don't. It, it's when you start to recognize them. So I was able to start recognizing these people that I would not normally run into that I started running into, and like beacons we have. And I feel that there's certain people that have been with each other before, and that we're pulled together. And that's that time when you go, "Why do I feel comfortable with this person?" Like so quickly, or what's that like the, this? Look, you probably were a Buddhist in another life. Guarantee it. All these different well, things. You have yeah, yeah, that question on there. You know, what is the work of how the world, Carl Jung, uh, changed your life? Right. I mean, it was like massively profound. Somebody handed me, you know, Man and His Symbols. Yeah, come And uh, I thought, you know, what's this about, right? And I read it. And it wasn't like the entire book is not like, because it's a series of essays, right? Right. But Carl Jung's essay is, is about Man and His Symbols. It's about the collective unconscious and like what he's learned about the collective unconscious. And I just like read it, and then I reread it, and I thought, this is like the key. It was like uh, it was like the, the key to everything for me. It was like suddenly, I understood what the stream was. I understood what the path was. I understood like all of it, like the, the way you say you run into things and things like mm -hmm. that. I thought, this is like this is like a radio station, and all I have to do is just tune into it, and like I'm there. I'm there all the time. I'm there with, you know, you or you or you. Mm -hmm. It's like I understand you. You understand me, and all I have to do is just make sure that I maintain that that understanding of the collective unconscious. Then I knew why that I had dropped acid and, and saw the mandalas and like, you know, saw ancient Indian temples and things like that. Like, these are all things that are inside of me. They're all part of this this gigantic genetic code that just like keeps streaming through mankind. And I just happened to like hit it that particular day and like the, the psychoactive drug that I took basically lit up some little string in the back of my brain, you know, that just like let it loose. So I saw it and I was like, what is that? Why am I seeing this? I've never, I don't know that, right? But I do know it. You know, when I read about the collective unconscious and, and uh, Jung's ideas, I thought, that's why I knew it. That's why I saw it. So then it, it, it became easy for me because then it was like all understanding. It wasn't like, why do I see this? And why did I hallucinate that? Or why did I think that? Then I knew why I thought all that. Then it became like one gigantic ball of light for me, you know, and I could right. like work 360 degrees at all times, you know. I knew when I used a certain color or when I used to create a certain design or when I aped something that I thought was powerful from a a spiritual image or something like that. Like, you know, I'd see like Catholic cards or I'd see like something that Hindus did with the, the multi-armed uh, deities and that sort of thing. I would use that vibe, you know, I'd just like look at it and I would like suck that particular energy and then I'd put it into like whatever piece that I was doing. You've seen it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I've used, I've used it like when I worked on the Tibetan Buddha, uh, the Freedom Concerts, I worked with the, the monks and I had to do like exactly, you know, the right deity for each job, which was like, you know, getting it okayed by them. That was like perfect for me because I, I loved getting involved in that, that sort of ancient culture thing. And I think what you just explained was tapping into your full potential. So when you talk about that, that's something that people say, yeah, we all, I want to tap into my full potential. So I think with spirituality and when you when you started talking about that and you hit it, it felt normal to you. It was like, it sounds like you're talking about it. It's like when you hit your stride, like you feel like it just made sense at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like it clicks and you don't know when it's going to click or why it clicks or what yogi guru or what it is that makes you start to open up. But when it does, I feel that that's what we're talking about. And to be able to share that, have a platform like this and talk about it, because look at talk about how amazing what you, how you're explaining it. There's other people on the other side of that that explain it differently just because they're confused. 
you know, so something that's so amazing, it's just switching the lens just a little bit so it, so it doesn't seem so scary because when you're told you're crazy, you, some, you'll start to believe it yeah. because that's what they're doing. That's what I said, was saying with the big hack. They, they, they go in and they can play with you a little bit. So, you know, those things are... Well, I think fear is like what... what, what fear, yeah. Off, fear, right? yeah. Fear. fear and shame is the best way to hold you down and most religions do that. I'll guilt you. I'll right. guilt you. I'll keep you. I'm going to shame you and guilt you. And you say ten of these and four. Of what? What do you? What the fuck? I was born. I'm not a sinner. I was clear as I did nothing. Come on, yo. Like so, they put these 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 boundaries on you. This bondage that you feel, and you're like, I, I remember growing up, and I used to say these every time I did something wrong. I'd say, Hell, Father, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, ten Hail Mary. I would say, but I started to think I could do all this shit, and I go say this, and it was I was absolved of all my sins. So it's like I was like, wait a second, this is this this whole concept is fucking with me. So I could just pay in and pay out, pay in, pay out. Yeah. Oh dang, okay, I'm gonna go do this, this, and this. Father, I have sinned. Let me tell you what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I just came up on. <laughs> no doubt, right? Yeah, no, that, no, that, would, that definitely would be too easy, wouldn't it? Well, it just you know, and then they tell you and they shame you, and but I just feel that that whole shame and guilt really does control you because fear and anger are the things even in that that documentary that they tap into. Human beings, that's an easy one to to, to trigger, you know. But if we started, what if they did that 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 big hack with love? What if they start sending out messages like that? What yeah. if they just spun it? Like you said, yeah. with, that was one of the best things I heard. It's turning fear into love. Now, yeah. think about of all these things that they're doing. It's they're, 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 doing, they're going the wrong the way. I was watching the debates last night, and it was like I almost couldn't even understand what they were talking about because they're so behind where they should be with the rhetoric. It's like they're getting on each other for things. They're, they're riding Biden for things that he did 50, 40 years ago. It's like who cares about 40 years ago? What are you doing now? Everyone evolves, you know, like, so he, it's it just, I, I couldn't even listen to it anymore because it was like, they're just on the wrong vibration, yeah. you know, and I look forward to when in office and in politics and in, in government, they think the way that we think. Who's Pamela Harris? Who's that? What's her name? Kamala uh, Harris. Harris. Who's the one that, 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 that Hari Jeevan and uh, Goody Jagger uh, took a picture with? Marianne. Marianne Williamson. Williamson. Yeah. yeah, she's kind of a very spiritual yeah, yogi. She's, she's on the right path. But I mean, it's like that's one out of a hundred. You know, it's like I can't wait. I mean, I, I look forward to the day for our kids. I can't wait to see what government looks like when, when my kids' kids are around that's how we're governing humans on they're doing it they're doing a thing not to, they're doing it this um for parolees i think in either washington or or i think it's washington but they're all yogis when i heard that i was like that's genius like really having all yogis as parole officers i just yeah one of them do they're doing it in i think it's in washington well, one of the yogis? one of the all yogis they're all yogis they're like using yogis as parole officers one of the candidates last night was talking about okay. how instead of putting people in jail for for crimes like and just leaving them there to figure out how to make do more crimes like teach them you know no they should have yoga yoga class meditation and, and, absolutely yeah. imagine if you had a five-year stint and you were meditating every day do you you'd come out a completely different human it's being. a crime that they're not doing it. it's a crime yeah. against humanity if they're really looking to, to they reform have a, what does reform mean yeah. They should yeah. have it. You should have it going into to schools so kids understand their instruments so they know what they're dealing with they ain't going to freak out. They're not going to need Ritalin and Adderall and all this shit they're freaking out on. I know because I, mean, I was on imagine, all that shit. Can you show. imagine that? You go do five years in jail and all you're doing is hearing mantra and taking yoga classes. 
you'd come out like the most peaceful being ever, enlightened human ever, versus fighting and it's, you know whatever else is going on. Things, in jail. things seem to seem seem to go backwards. I mean, I would say that my uh, my politics were were fired up in the in the civil rights movement. I mean, that's when I you know when I grew up and I saw that on TV. I mean, you can say Vietnam had something to do with it, but I would say the civil rights movement was the biggest thing, and it was like you saw it on TV every night, and you saw Martin Luther King, and it was like. It seemed like everything was moving forward, you know, and of course the women's movement also kind of like came along at the same time. So it seemed like a powerful, a powerful time of change where it's like suddenly like all these, these wrongs are being righted, right? So if somebody would have came to me like in 1964 and said that like in 2019 we would have what we have, you know, and that racism would still be like this gigantic like issue what? where it's just being talked about, I would have just said that's like 50 years in the future. I, I would say that's like, that would not be possible. Then, I mean, I would have not, I wouldn't have found it acceptable to even like have that argument. I would have thought like, wait, if we keep going from where we're going now, this is all going to be solved like, you know, somewhere in the late 70s, right? Maybe, you know, not like re, you know, done and redone and redone. Well, that goes suddenly. back, that goes back to the assassinations though. I mean, yeah, the, the, the leaders that were pushing hear, that movement. Yeah, were, to look at this to yeah, CNN right now and listen to what they're talking about, about how prejudiced the things are being said it's so wild that it doesn't even sound like it's real yeah, like to me i'm like wait I'm like yeah i mean it's just like it's, it's like become like a giant issue an issue that you would, issue. You would think like i, I thought we, that issue like it should not even be a debatable point but i think point, you know right? also watching that show last night and looking at at what they were trying to convey their their message and about putting all that information into computers so people are seeing it and putting out messages of racism of riot yeah, and creating and stoke completely and so when you look at the government and looking at the, all the information that, they, that they've, they've gathered to make your opinion of what you think, you know, I'm not saying they're right what, what it is, but it doesn't look good. I mean, it, it, it looks as, as if we got railroaded into voting for somebody that shouldn't have most likely been there in a way that didn't seem like they were completely honest with how they got people to do what they did. Yeah. You know? So I think that, you know, maybe just depending on one another without all that computers and all the equipment, no, but the problem probably is better for them. We're never going to go back. No, I, know, I got it. Keep going forward. I mean, you're going to have more Ubers, and you're going to have more apps, and you're going to have more cell phones. And you're basically, I mean, 2,000 years, I mean, human beings, I, I would think that, you know, that our, our fate is to, to be superseded by machinery. I mean, we're going to, we're going to you know, Definitely, like Android ourselves out to the point where we're going to be superseded by machinery. I heard I, I heard a really interesting um, interview with Elon Musk and, and uh, Joe Rogan about that, and and it's really interesting when you hear it, when you hear people that are very intelligent speaking about it, to where you're like, oh, like you know, when you, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, dude, right? So for me, if someone said it, I'd listen to it and I go, yeah, anyways, that sounds cool. But when you hear two different people that are successful, very intelligent, start talking about it in a way that can very much well happen. But for me, I, I don't think God makes mistakes at all. So I don't think that man is going to outsmart. It's like saying that a computer is smarter than we are. We are supercomputers that will never be outdone. I don't care what anyone says. That's what I think. And I think when we're done, we'll go to our supercomputer. But ultimately, I don't believe that. I, I, I just think that things will evolve and they'll correct themselves the same way as what we're talking about. They keep correcting themselves. Mm. It could be a master plan where we have organic materials that actually become like computer materials. Right. And we become like organic computers. I mean, organic machines or AI type machines. Do you believe in aliens? Yes, I, I do. You're fucking weird, man. I'm but, just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. 
I, I, I believe mean, in aliens too. I mean, like, aliens in the sense of like, yeah, I, I can't assume that like, like the universe that I see out there is like, there's not like another spider somewhere, you know what I mean? And it's right. like, everything is like just concentrated on this one cold ball floating through space, right? It's all good here and everywhere else is nothing. That's, that's, that doesn't work for me at no, all. No, how can but it be? But then I also believe in, in multiple dimensions. I, I think that like, uh, it's like, you know, we can see like a, a certain color spectrum, right? right? And beyond that color spectrum, there's a ton of other color, right? We can hear a certain thing, and beyond that, there's a lot. So I'm assuming that like there's a lot of there's a, a lot of physical spec. I don't know. I'd say physical, but I'd say that like it's, it's split up into like it's a, a string theory type of thing, right? So there's a sense that like I feel that aliens could be just things passing through, you know, basically our dimension from another dimension. So you I said mean, something so important because because we're used to seeing things a certain way, right? There could be a ship right outside the building, but because it's something that we wouldn't see, it might just tie right into whatever it is that we're looking at. Exactly. We'd miss it. Because exactly. if we actually saw it, if people saw a, a, a UFO land, that, that, there'd be mass hysteria. Yeah. It'd be the end of the world. People don't, we didn't know how to understand it because they don't have control over yeah. that. I know, and it's like when you take a powerful psychoactive drug and you're sitting in a chair and you watch like a freight train go through that wall and go out that wall and make all the noise it's going to make and, the, and all everything and the whole house is rattling and everything and then it finishes up and the walls close up and you go like, Okay. <laughs> right. I've seen some. I've heard some. I've yeah. seen Yogi say some things, but I that it's hard now. Not to, to now. I'm so open to everything because of the way I see things. So if someone says an alien, because the word alien, it just sounds so funny. What is the depiction in my head of what that is? I, I don't quite know, but I do believe that we're not the only ones here. I do believe that we've recreated and we're coming back in time, and what we're kind of passing through has happened before. I think time bends. I think that. You know, that whole... Have you seen in, Dark on Netflix? No, I didn't. Anybody? No. Gotta watch it. It's all, about, it's all about that. It's all about time. Is it? It's all about bending time, like time travelers. And it's, it's, everything happens in 33-year cycles. So, okay. That's funny. Is that was the thing I said. So right when I, I first freaked out, right? They said, oh, he's losing his mind. I would go into my shower. I'd go lay in the shower. I built this huge house in Malibu. I start meditating. They're like, what's he doing? And because at the time I never meditated in my life I come out of the meditation and so what they did is they started telling my stepdad Dave to watch me because they were they were really worried about me so what I did was I would go talk to Dave and I start whispering to him and I'd say do you believe in space travel and he'd look at me like what it's real <laughs> it's real and I didn't understand but I would felt like I'd been through some kind of space travel portal of some sort and I'd come back with some information. That's what I felt like when this first happened to me. Uh -huh. I felt like there was a panel of people talking to me. And when I spoke to other people about that and to get their opinions, they'd say, oh, that's what they call the panel of light. Or there was different you know, ways people had of explaining it. But that was kind of what I picked up on. And the way my human mind picked up and said it to my dad was, I was like, I'm space traveling. Because that's just the way I depicted of picking up on these other energies of what was happening to me you know probably from the movies that i saw so you know i was a pretty creative cat so and then the simple i way to, the simple way to look at it is if you just go out if you just go out at night and you look up at the stars right and you're say if you, you find, see a distant star or something right. like that you're looking at something that may not have been there for millions of years right so you're basically looking into the past i mean because we see light from stars and by the time the light gets to us they burn. that star has been gone for a long time so Clearly, there's like stars out there that we're like, so you're, you're basically looking millions of years into the past just by looking up at the sky. So that simply shows like how limited our scope is. I mean, the fact that like, yeah, there's a lot of things we could see 
or think about, they're quite different than we perceive them, right? Right. Because, yeah, you're looking straight into the past. Right, right. Jim, um, we'd like to invite you to participate in the next art show that we're, we're doing, similar to the one that we did in Malibu in 2017. Right. Um, this time, instead of feeding or helping the homeless, we're... It's both. F- it's homeless, too. It's, it's, mental, it's mental health and homeless. Um, I just felt that, uh, you know, living in Malibu, there's a woman there that we helped in that art show. Her name is Carol Moss. Uh, Carol Moss has been helping homeless for years. And, I mean, so many years she's been attacked. She's been... She's been beat. She's done so many things that have been done, and she, she she'll keep she opens up her house in Malibu to homeless people. Um, that poor woman has been beat. Oh, beat like attacked, like all kinds of things. Her birthday's coming up in November, but when I got out of the mental institution, the uh, first thing I did was end up on a, a door her doorstep and said I wanted to do an art show yeah. and raise money for homeless. And with Eddie, that's how we all we connected. And just said all, and she's Buddhist. Too. She's she's she has, that's the whole. I didn't know she was Buddhist, so I was you know connected to all these Buddhists. With, we should go with Jim over there to one of her Thursday night things. Oh no, we should go. She we should definitely go. We can in. go tonight. Well, it's today she do tonight. Like a Thursday night. I can't. It's my I forgot. It's my it's my uh, my yeah, stepdad's uh, birthday, but definitely. So she's Buddhist. But so what I did was I said I wanted to have her come and be part of this this show, and I said you know in Malibu, it's hard because people if you're lower economics in Malibu, they just, you don't care if you're homeless, they just want you out of there. Well, if you start to talk about you know mental illness, and because after mental illness you become homeless a lot of times, that's yeah. what happens with these people. So I think it kind of is runs hand in hand. So um, it will be for mental illness and homelessness to bring attention and awareness to it. Um, I think that uh, that's what the art show will be doing. Um, what do you have coming up? Don't you have an art show coming up? Yeah, in Beverly Hills. It's um I worked with a, uh, a master printer named uh, Richard Duardo in the 80s. It was like um, a period of time when uh, I was kind of trying to reinvent myself, and I, I met Richard, and, and he was working on some projects, and he had to deal with a gallery that I was working with, and we decided to collaborate and uh, created a body of work over a four-year period of time using his silkscreen studio. And I hadn't really done much with it, uh, but Eddie Donaldson came along to my house one time when I first met him, and he dug up some of these paintings, and he goes, hey, you should do something with these things. So he's the kind of guy, that, he's, he's sort of the guy that really rediscovered uh, those particular pieces of work, and now they're gonna be shown in Beverly Hills. And there's also a, a collaboration I did with uh, Kelly Gravel, AKA Risk, and he's repainting and reworking some of the canvases. So it's a, a three-way collaboration with about a 25-year space, 35 year, 25? Yeah, yeah. in the 80s. Right, not 35 years ago? So yeah. the pieces are actually 35-year-old pieces Yeah, 35 brought out of pieces. the archives. Who right. are some of the people that are on those pieces? It's Madonna, Elvis. Madonna, uh, James Dean, uh, Sean Connery. Um, that's, are you bringing Billy Idol out? No, uh, no, no. Slash? Slash, no. no. Not rock. Older stuff. Yeah, mostly older stuff, yeah. So it's like a series of Hollywood icons. So it's, the show is called Hollywood Icons. So it's, it's an older body of work, and it's going to have a few new pieces in it, but mostly an older body of work. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the, on the, uh, on the Space Between. And um, next week, I think we'll be, uh, if you tune in, we're interviewing Amanda Sage, who's coming up. Um, so, and she'll be participating in the art show as well. But thanks for coming down and uh, joining us and talking about all this uh, spiritual mumbo-jumbo. Right. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Sat Nam, and thank you for joining us. Sat Nam. Om Shanti. <laughs>